This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this, this is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio. Here's your host, Christian Tervish. Welcome to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tervish, and we are here for you every Monday night at 5 p.m. Eastern, followed by replays throughout the week. Though my show is called Work of Tomorrow, after interviewing nearly 100 guests about their work, my producer Matt Dads and I felt that we should take a break and move from work to play. So playing games is the topic of the show today. Playing games, as fun as it is for most of us, is of course work for those people who produce the games. And the gaming industry is going through some very substantial transformations. Reason enough to have a special show dedicated to games, during which we will talk about old games like card games and board games, and those new games which we all are playing online. To help us explore this topic, I will be speaking to two wonderful guests. Elaine Chase, Vice President of Esports for Wizards of the Coast, part of Hasbro Company. And in the second half of the show, I will be talking to Gio Hunt, Executive Vice President and Executive Producer at Blizzard Entertainment, which is a company that produces World of Warcraft. At this point, welcome, Elaine. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Hey, Elaine. Uh, you work for Hasbro, and so it's really in your work that you produce what we all play. If you had two hours with friends or family tonight, what would you play? I, I would honestly play my favorite game in the world, which is Magic the Gathering. Um, it might sound a little self-serving because I work on the Magic the Gathering business, but um, I've been with Wizards for 20 years, and to be honest, it's my dream job. I get to come to work and do what I love to do every day. What makes a board game in general, a card game in general, or in particular Wizards of the Coast so, so special that it, you, you keep on the desire to play it at all times? So for me, really, like we, we sell board games and card games, um, but what we really end up offering people is times with friends around the table. Um, that's really what makes face-to-face gaming the most important thing out there. Um, it gives you a time to just kind of unwind and relax and hang out and have fun with people um, and be clever together. Uh, that, 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 that to me is what makes um, board gaming and tabletop gaming have a timeless appeal to it. Now, I remember Monopoly, uh, probably the kind of the mother of maybe all of the strategy, but many of the board games is, is, is really a Parker Brothers game, but it really is now part of Hasbro Corporation, right? Yes, it is. And you guys with $5 billion companies are quite, you know, you have a fair number of games out there. You have brands under you such as PlaySchool and Tonka. Can you just explain a little bit uh, the product line and the brands that you have at Hasbro? Yeah, sure. So um, I so I work for Wizards of the Coast, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of Hasbro. Um, at Wizards of the Coast, we focus on uh, kind of strategy games that target more an adult gamer. Um, so we have our, our flagship brand, which is one of Hasbro's uh, franchise brands, Magic the Gathering, which is a trading card game. It's the first ever trading card game. It's been around for 25 years. Um, in addition to that, we also have Dungeons & Dragons, which was the first ever role-playing game. That's been around for more than 40 years, which shows you how long these games really have in the marketplace. Um, and then Hasbro itself, has a whole host of other game division in his gaming group, um, Monopoly being the one that's most well-known. You have, uh, how do you get them to the consumers? I think at some point you even had retail stores, right? Yeah, so the interesting thing for Wizards of the Coast um, is that we sell most of our products in through uh, kind of family-owned core hobby game stores. So we have over 6,000 stores around the world in over 70 countries that carry Magic the Gathering um, and Dungeons and & Dragons. Uh, and not only do they sell the game, but they also provide play space. So they're really community hubs where people come in and hang out and play games together for hours and hours every week. Tell us about the process of getting a game from initial idea to design to prototyping to testing. I remember about, must have been like 15 years ago, we were living in Europe back then for a bit. Uh, the Settlers of Catan came out, and I think it was this magical story how an individual basically dreamed up the story, dreamed up the game, and turned it into a hugely successful kind of venture. How, how do you create new titles or new games? So the interesting thing for Hasbro on that standpoint is that um, they actually do a lot of social listening, and they pay attention to kind of what's trending uh, in the marketplace, what's trending on social media, what are people having fun doing. And a lot of the Hasbro games that have come to market recently um, have, have really capitalized on, on those trends. Uh, for Wizards of the Coast, we make games that, uh, that, that take a, a little bit uh, a little longer to design. As said, Magic's been around for 25 years. Um, it's, got, it's got a fantastic story behind it. Um, uh, the company was very, very
very small at the time. It was before it was owned by Hasbro, uh, and uh, they, they made role-playing games. Uh, and uh, the inventor of the game was Richard Garfield. He came to the, the president of Wizards at the time, uh, and he pitched a totally different game. He pitched a board game uh, called Robo Rally, and uh, the CEO was like, well, you know, I, I can't really make a board game right now, um, but I'll tell you what I'm looking for. I'm looking for something that's small and portable that you can play in 15 minutes in between games of Dungeons & Dragons. Can, can you come up with something like that? Uh, and Richard went back off, uh, and he worked on it for a little bit, and he came back with this idea um, that he called Maniclash at the time. Um, this was a trading card game, uh, and it was so revolutionary for the marketplace. Nobody had ever done a trading card game before. The thing that makes it different is that unlike traditional card games, where everybody plays from the same deck of cards, with a trading card game, everybody has their own collection of cards, and they build their own decks with their own strategies and their own approaches, um, and then they can trade cards and build new decks and, and try new strategies all the time. And it completely revolutionized the game industry when it came out 25 years ago. So can you can you design a game like you're designing a new toothpaste where you say like I wanted to you know smell a little this way and taste a little this way and it has to be good against gravity you in development go on and do your job now or is there like a to stay in the business terminology is, is there magic involved and you need this kind of magic spark There's definitely magic involved I mean there, there's certainly a lot of um Uh, discipline that comes in in terms of market research and making sure you know that people are enjoying it and, and are able to learn it and have a good time um, and you iterate as you go but at the heart of gameplay is games are really an art form more than anything else uh, and so it really is coming up with this idea that you have uh, of a way for people to have fun and be clever around their their, their game at what point in the development do you know if, it, uh, if a new game is becoming a blockbuster i mean I, i assume through the market research you do lots of market testing and focus groups but how predictive are they of the ultimate success if, if something really goes viral the viralness of a game is something that's really hard to predict um, you can do a pretty good job figuring out if you're if you're checking those boxes and if you have something that's going to be appealing um, but uh, just like any you know other industry the things that go viral are sometimes unexpected because for something to go viral it's not just a good quality product that you have lots of times there's little bits of, of luck involved in getting the right kind of placement or the right kind of pickup at the right time Now, uh, when you have such a successful game, uh, there's always a temptation of kind of just coming up with the next version of it as opposed to coming up with something new, right? You kind of like to have extensions and second sequels and sequels, just like in movies, really. How do you make that decision when it is time to have like a whole new category, a whole new story versus kind of just telling the next chapter of, some, of, of a book that is already written? Yeah, that's an interesting question, because at Wizards of the Coast, the games that we make, we consider ourselves stewards of a game that lives on for a very long time. So for both Magic the Gathering and Dungeons and Dragons, we constantly create new experiences, new supplements, new card sets, um, new campaigns uh, that take the core elements of the game, but put new twists and new mechanical hooks to them, or new world settings and new characters. Um, when you look at new games all, all Overall, um, th that's kind of a, a different group within the company that'll go and say, hey, what, what kind of new opportunities are there? Um, so, for instance, we just came out with a new game called Dungeon Mayhem, um, which is a simple, fun, fast family card game that's based loosely around the, the, the IP and world of Dungeons and Dragons, but is a completely different play experience. How does this fit with your market segmentation in, in the sense that I could imagine if there is somebody who has been loyally playing Dungeons and Dragons for, for 10, 15 years, they would, of course, be more receptive to like a, a new version, new cards, new elements, because they, they really they cherish the memories and memories are really coming to life over years that they have played this with family and friends versus a new generation entering the market in which are old enough now to purchase their own games, they don't have these memories. Uh, so, so how do you, how do you segment these markets? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, when you're dealing with brands and games that have been around as long as Magic and Dungeons and Dragons, um, the, the, the trick is to not just play to the people who exist. Because if you do that, then what happens is the games get more complex and more complex over time. Um, because if you're just talking to people who have already learned the game, then they're just constantly looking for the new thing. Um, we've actually found as we've gone through both games, both Magic and D&D, &D, that there's been times throughout the history where we've took a look and we've gone through the market research and we've seen what's happening in terms of you know player acquisition and people being able to come into the game and realize that we've gone a little bit too far and the game itself had gotten too dense and it 
was just too hard. It was too inaccessible for people to get into it. Um, and so there's always this constant balancing act between making sure the game is always fresh and new and interesting for the people who've been around, um, also making sure it's relevant to what's going on in entertainment today, uh, while at the same time being accessible and welcoming to people who are new to the game. Um, the, the best way we found to do that it often is to make sure we always have a suite of entry-level products, right? whether they're card sets um, or campaign sets, um, things that make it easy and accessible for people to come in. And then you put that little more crunchy bit of you know, more complex things in kind of deeper into the product lineup. Talking about staying fresh and relevant, uh, I mean, online and virtual games are, are, are clearly kind of the, the, the elephant in the room here. Uh, so how, how, how have you kind of, you've been in this profession for a while now. How, how, how did you experience first the kind of the video games, now the online games, now the, the more social media games? How did you experience that kind of transformation of the, uh, at least part of the industry? Yeah, so Magic's been around for 25 years, as I said. Um, and during that time, we've been innovators in a lot of different spaces. Uh, we actually had the first digital uh, collectible card game with Magic the Gathering Online when it released in 2002, which is ages ago now. Um, but uh, we've always seen that digital is a space where we can reach new customers, uh, where we can crea create new fans. And every time we've come out with a new digital experience, we've actually found that we've brought people into the tabletop version at the same time that they've come into the digital version. Um, we had another great success called Duels of the Planeswalkers, which originally came out on Xbox Live. Um, and that really opened up and, and ushered in a, a really long period of growth for us. Um, but today, I'm super excited uh, that we have our new, brand new digital offering, which is Magic the Gathering Arena. Uh, so it's a PC-based game that's a very modern, quick to play. Um, it's as much fun to stream and watch on Twitch as it is to play. Uh, and it really is for us that entry point into um, getting that wider group of digital gamers. Uh, that, that segment of the audience is just, it, it's much bigger than what's available for tabletops. So we're really excited to introduce Magic to a whole new category of gamers who may not have ever touched a card before. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and I'm chatting with Elaine Chase, who is Vice President of Esports for Wizards of the Coast. And we're talking about now the relationship between the, pardon the wording, the old traditionally established uh, games such as card games and board games and their relationships uh, with the online gaming world. And um, can you, at whatever level of detail, uh, Elaine, you're comfortable sharing, can you give us a sense of the percentage of Wizards of the Coast games that are played online, uh, that are played electronically? Uh, so since Magic the Gathering and Dungeons and Dragons have been around so long and our newest digital offerings are really quite new to the market, we still see a bulk of our sales today being in that tabletop space. That said, we see huge growth potential for us in front of us in the digital realm. And we're really looking forward to introducing our brands to a whole host of new gamers. And do you see, I mean, I, I liked how you put it in some sense in the, the, the new technology, the online technology could basically be for you a customer acquisition channel with the main part of revenues going forward becoming from the board game still, or it could just be a replacement in 20 years from now. Uh, how, how, do you just, how do you think about kind of the revenue model that you with your business aspire to grow into? Yeah, as, as I said before, the potential audience within the digital game space is gigantic. It's just it's much bigger than what is available within the tabletop space. Um, even though tabletop gaming has been growing at a significant clip over the last five years, um, and I don't think that's going to slow down anytime soon. Um, so we definitely see our tabletop business growing over time, uh, but I would not be surprised at all for our digital business to just explode. Um, we've got the right game at the right market at the right time, and with the initiatives that we're putting behind it, such as our investment in esports, and um, we really do expect that to pay off. Now, many companies we talk to on the on the show have a certain tension. In many ways, the whole show is about the tension between the old and the new. And I'm just wondering, when you are going into this online world increasingly now, and also looking for the business future, more and more revenue coming from this online world, uh, how do you make that? transition or this this kind of this is how do you start that new voyage is there a separate unit that uh, is basically only in charge of the digital product is there basically uh, one common team responsible for everything is there a tension between the old and the new within your organization 
So what we did for Magic the Gathering Arena was we we built a new team, and that new team was split kind of uh, with, with people from two different groups. Some of the team came from the existing Magic business. We took people who know Magic, who know Magic fans, who know the game, who know what people are looking for and knows what make it awesome. And then we brought into the company a whole host of talent from the digital games industry to add to us the thing that we were missing, which is how do we make awesome digital games? How do we make a really great user experience? How do we how do we translate this amazing game that's been around for so long into a into a method and into a platform uh, that really lets it shine as it lives there? Um, and so we took this combined approach of having a, a mix of existing Wizards employees and then bringing in digital talent, uh, and that has been a, a really successful for us. That must have led to some, let me politely and diplomatically call it creative friction, right? Between, I'm just picturing somebody who is maybe an English major or an artist who has kind of perfected a certain card. And now comes this kind of kid from MIT who's talking about latency in computer networks to make the gaming experience fun. Um, is, that, is that kind of a cultural shock that you experienced or is, 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 am I naive about that? Oh, no, there definitely was creative friction. Um, but honestly, creative friction is something that we thrive in here. Um, we, we have creative friction even just within, you know, the tabletop divisions that we have. Uh, our, our philosophy here really is one that uh, we want people to come out and debate ideas openly and move forward so that we've got all the best possible plans in front of us. Um, and we really tried to defer to people for their area of expertise. But I think that's the thing that helped us navigate um, those kind of, you know, political friction waters um, in that the, the people who really know the existing business, people they were deferred to for understanding who our customer is today. Um, and the people who really understood the digital business were deferred to when we're talking about who is our customer of tomorrow. Elaine, to the extent that you are willing to share details, and you really don't have to go into micro-level details here, but I would like to talk about the business models and the, the financials. Um, let's just pick a traditional board or card game. What is? Can you give us a rough sense of a cost structure, a game that you would purchase, like, and let's make it maybe not one of your games, if that you, if you're more comfortable with that. If I purchase a box of Settlers of Catan, um, how much does it cost to produce a box like that? Was the box, the cards, the the items that are in there, the cardboard for the game? What is the kind of the variable production cost, order yeah, of magnitude? Yeah, no, that's a great question, and I'm sorry, but unfortunately, I don't feel comfortable answering. Oh, okay, it. fair, fair enough, right? But. Um, the there's I mean people always think of the old card the the old card games or the board games like the old technology and digital everything is free but these are having written books and sold books myself these are very healthy margin products ultimately right I mean it's it's not something that a box for thirty dollars is costing you twenty five dollars in production. I mean, honestly, it's just like any other industry, um, and really everything goes down to scale, right? Mm -hmm. um, if, if you're able to sell a lot of a product, then you amortize your costs over what you're making. Um, so really the trick in the board and card game industry is that so many games, even when they're successful, have very small print runs, right? And that increases the cost. Um, it's when you're able to have monster hits like Magic and Dungeons and & Dragons where you can start to really see that benefit of scale. What I find interesting with the kind of the traditional non-digital way of, of gaming, again, it doesn't matter if you pick Monopoly, if you pick uh, Dungeons and Dragons or Settlers of Catan, you as a company, you sell a box to a customer and that customer might get 10, 20, 30 years of game time and a wonderful time with friends and family out of that game. And you don't know it really, right? I mean, to the, uh, unless they're coming back to you for other products, but they, they can have a great time without ever connecting back to the producer. That, that is true. So the, the, the thing that we do to help try to connect with our audience as much as possible um, is the, the Wizards games really thrive on people getting together and playing together um, in, in fairly public places. So one of our most successful programs is called Friday Night Magic. And what it is is that uh, in 6,000 stores around the world, every Friday night, people go into their local friendly game store to hang out and play Magic. Um, and all of those people are in our tournament system, so we, they have accounts with us. Um, we can see trends and how people are playing and how they're interacting with the product. Um, now, of course, we can't capture, you know, when someone's playing, you know, at, at the, the cafeteria at school or, you know, in a, in a club after work um, or things like that. Uh, but we are able to connect with a, a huge amount of our audience because of our store programs and our relationship with our local retailers. That's really interesting, right? Because, again, I think it helps make the move 
move or helps with attention that there's a difference between selling a product, uh, but ultimately you are a service provider, right? Really what you said, Elaine, at the beginning of the interview is you're really selling experiences, right? And uh, the experience is not something that you buy once and you have forever. It needs to be recreated every time. So I, I love this kind of this approach of having the games be played in stores, having leagues, having tournaments. Um, so you have, I would imagine, like a whole team of folks that are basically in charge of kind of helping that community to stay engaged and kind of play these games? Yeah, but believe it or not, we actually have two different teams. Um, we have one whole team that's for our Wizards Play Network, um, and that's the team that interacts with the stores that we have around the world. Um, and they don't just help them with sales, right? Of, of course, sales is a component of it. Um, but really, the focus of our, of our WPN team is to get stores to be able to do the best job possible in nurturing their communities, right? How do they build their player base? How do they attract new people into their stores? How do they make sure their store is, is a fun, friendly place where people feel happy to come back? Um, that, that's a huge focus for us as a company. Um, and then the other team that we have working on it um, is our uh, esports and competitive gaming team, which is the team that I lead. And we are focused on that more top-level competitive play, um, whether that be in tabletop, where we have, um, you know, 50 uh, Grand Prix tournaments around the world every year, where, every, where over the course of a weekend, a few thousand people will show up and you know, play in a competitive tournament, but then it's also surrounded by side events and artist signings and all kinds of other things that happen at the event, um, from things like Grand Prix through uh, our championship events that we have. Um, and we're super excited that this year coming up, with the introduction of Magic the Gathering Arena on digital, uh, we've actually just announced that we've revamped the entirety of our competitive gaming program to be able to integrate esports with Magic the Gathering Arena. So speaking of the esports or the the online games, um, what's the revenue model there? And again, without going into de into details, but the basic revenue model in the old world was if if, if the box costs thirty dollars and you're selling ten boxes, you got three hundred dollars, right? Basically, it's just price times volume. Versus in the digital world, we can basically have subscriptions, we can have pay per game, we can have pay per minute, we can have it free and hope to make the money up, uh, make the money in, in in the traditional games. Uh, what type of overall strategy do you see pursuing yourself in the uh, in, in in the digital world? Yeah, so for Magic the Gathering Arena, it is a free-to-play game. Um, so people can go in and play and earn cards um, and, and without spending a dime. Um, uh, just like every other free-to-play game, there are opportunities to purchase. Um, but we really see the introduction of esports within that space as a way to get people engaged in the game, um, something you know, to give them something to do to, to strive after. Um, and then the, the broadcast and viewership of the esports competitions we see as a way to build awareness and acquisition for the game. Are there experiences that you feel like don't translate well online? Again, going back to your opening examples, it's really about shared experiences around the table, right? There's this communal element of, of, of gaming uh, that potentially gets lost in, 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 in the online world. How do you think about kind of what part of the product attribute can be translated into the digital world and what part is really just uniquely part of just touching the good old paper cards? Yeah, so the thing that Magic has going for it is that it actually is a united community that has both ways to play. So uh, MTG Arena and Tabletop Magic both have the same cards that come out that get released. Um, they both are playing the same kind of decks. People are playing the same in the same community, um, and people will play both. Uh, so what we see happen is that people will play MTG Arena when they're at home, you know, when they can't make it to the game store. Um, it's, it's just super convenient for them. But then they'll go out and they'll try to get together in person with people on Friday night for Friday Night Magic or hang out with their friends. Um, and so having this combination of I'm playing the same game with the same cards with the same people, but sometimes I play it face-to-face -face and sometimes I play it online, really adds this still personal connection even when you're playing the digital game. So in some sense, we oftentimes here in the university world think of our courses where we have kind of the traditional lecture hall type of courses and now we have online courses. And ideally, we would like our students to take a little bit of both. Um, but what I was interested in is kind of as you think about coming up with new online content, excuse me, with new content, like new cards, new characters, how how do you decide what kind of what dragons, what cards to release? Is that something, again, I'm thinking in the digital world, it would be very quick to get your user base vote on what kind of dragon comes next or what feature of the story comes next. Uh, how do you How do you see yourself taking advantage of that? 
So we definitely see ourselves taking advantage of the fact that MTG Arena is digital and being able to offer some some, uh, some digital experiences that you just can't do in tabletop. Um, the two of them combined, though, really do focus on having the same kind of card sets come out. But for, to, to give you an example, um, we have a digital format that's called um, Momir Basic, and it basically lets you uh, bring out cards from the entirety of Magic's collection randomly. Um, that's obviously something you couldn't possibly do uh, with 18,000 different cards in tabletop. Um, it would just be impossible. But it's a fun format um, that still lets you use the same cards that tabletop uses and the same rules that tabletop uses, but it gives you a very uniquely digital experience. So let's talk a little bit about how it feels like working for you since, you know, after all, the, the show is called Work of Tomorrow. So uh, if I would work for you, how much of my weekly hours would I spend uh, playing? Oh, um, honestly, it depends on what, what department that you're Fair in. Fair enough. So, uh, yeah. I, so I, I personally spent four years in research and development as a trading card game designer. Um, and in that world, I, I would spend a good 80% of my time playing games. Um, to be honest, it was one of the best jobs I've ever had. It was, it was pretty amazing. I would actually get notes in my review saying I needed to make sure I played more, you know, if you could imagine that as, as getting that note on your, on your review. Um, the, the folks on my team, I try to make sure that we have time set aside every week where we can sit down and play um, uh, face-to-face, tabletop, and then also everyone's encouraged to sit down and make sure that they've got time every week to play MTG Arena digitally, because um, you really need to live the experience that your fans and your players are having in order to create the best possible experiences for them. When you re- recruit new talent, do you have a sense, is that a personality trait, whether somebody is good at this type of job, or can you screen for that? Can you see it from their Vita where they graduated? How, how do you get a sense of who is a good kind of game developer? Yeah, so um, we look for a, a lot of different things. And again, it depends on what job you're coming for in the company because we have so many different um, uh, disciplines here. Um, but for instance, if you're coming in and you want to be a, a game designer or a game developer, um, what we really look for is have you designed and developed games before? Um, and uh, of course, being published always helps. Um, but even if you come to the table with, you know, hey, I've done this design work or I've worked for these places before, that, that helps a lot. Um, the, the other kind of good places we come in for that creative side are we take people in um, with literary backgrounds, you know, people who have very uh, robust storytelling backgrounds. Um, we have a lot of artists on our staff. Um, so really, at the end of the day, it depends on what discipline you're coming in for, and, and we look for you to have demonstrated excellence in the discipline that you're coming to. What is next for you, Elaine, as a company and for you personally in your career? Honestly, for me, really, it is all about our esports initiative. Um, so uh, I've been with the company for 20 years, um, and just recently um, I, I switched roles. I previously was uh, the vice president of global brand strategy and marketing for Magic, um, leading the Magic the Gathering business. Um, and our esports initiative is so important to the company. And by the company, I mean not just Wizards. I also mean Hasbro, um, that uh, I, I've moved over to focus on it full time. Uh, so for me, it's really taking the game of Magic that I love, that's been around for 25 years, um, and exploding us out on the esports competitive scene um, by tapping into the legacy that we've had with competitive gaming um, that's been around for more than 20 years um, and, and really making a strong entrance in that digital esports space. I need to ask you one personal question. Have you ever cheated in Monopoly? No, I do not cheat in Monopoly. That's a strong <laughs> statement. I was just I was just wondering, having a more reliable bank in uh, Monopoly than many parents might be uh, <laughs> is another great example of digitalization. Yes, yes. Thank you so much, Elaine. Elaine Chase, Vice President of Esports for Wizards of the Coast at Hasbro Company. At this point, it's my big pleasure to introduce my second guest, Gio Hunt, Executive Vice President and Executive Producer at Blizzard Entertainment, the company that produces World of Warcraft. Welcome, Gio. Hello there. How are you? Hey, Gio. You are the executive producer of one of the most played games in the world. How many hours per week do you play yourself? Oh, me, myself? Oh, <laughs> a lot. Maybe too much. My wife wouldn't, would, would, uh, would be pretty upset if I was telling pu- people publicly how much I play. Oh, but, I know um, that pleasure. It's, it's, <laughs> it's staying between you and me. Give me the data. Uh, you know, probably 15 to 20 hours a week of playing video games still, even at my age. How, how about the next generation in your family? Uh, my son and my daughter also both play video games a lot. My son's off at college right now. He's not supposed to be playing a lot of video games, but my guess is he's still probably playing 10 to 15 hours a week himself. Exactly. Now during exam time is a good way to calm down. Uh, talk about how Blizzard's uh, games started and, and how they have evolved over the past years. 
I'm sorry, say again the question. Uh, talk about how Blizzard's uh, game overall, the, your, your company has started and how they have evolved over the, the past years. Sure. So Blizzard Entertainment's been around quite a long time. The company was founded in 1991 and was initially uh, working on building games uh, based in the IP of other companies and doing ports of games for other companies, and then over time started to do its own games. Uh, it really came into its own as a company in the mid to late 90s um, with games like StarCraft uh, and WarCraft. Uh, and then I think the company is probably most known for the game World of Warcraft, which we initially launched in late 2004. Um, but the company also, and really that was the moment at which the company and that game became more of a household name. Um, but the company is also responsible for creating such great worlds as Diablo and Overwatch and Hearthstone. We have a whole number of great intellectual properties in our portfolio now and uh, multiple games in all of those franchises as well. So the company started real small and over the last 27, now almost 28 years, has really grown into being you know, one of the leading uh, developers and publishers of video games for PCs consoles and mobile devices. Now, World of Warcraft alone has many millions of sub subscribers and players. Can you can you share with us some statistics of uh, either total number of players or sessions or however you want to measure engagement with the with the market? Yeah, the wonderful thing about World of Warcraft is it's still you know, going strong after being launched in 2004, here we are at the end of 2018. So for 14 years, this game has been attracting many millions of players playing every month, uh, connecting with one another from all around the world. Um, so it's truly a, a phenom, honestly, in the video game industry to have a game that has remained so vibrant and so strong for 14 years running now. Um, I still play World of Warcraft myself for 14 straight years now um, and play almost every week. So it's a really great community of players from all over the world um, who you know are able to congregate online and just live out a great and exciting adventure um, and do that on an ongoing basis. World of Warcraft's going strong and will be around for a long time to come. I, I somewhere came across this statistic that if the World of Warcraft community would, instead of playing the game, invest into Wikipedia article writing, they would write to Wikipedia like every two weeks or so. Have you have you heard that story? I haven't heard that statistic, but uh, based upon how many people we have playing World of Warcraft and how committed they are uh, to helping to create the environment, it wouldn't surprise me. But I <laughs> I can't attest to that statistic because I've never heard it before. How does how does the playing time, the engagement, the fun? The the action, the adventures, how does it translate into financial performance for your business? So um, with respect to the World of Warcraft business, it's a subscription model. Um, so our players pay us on a monthly basis in order to play that game. Um, but we have other games that are have different business models as well. So, for example, our game that's called Hearthstone is a free-to-play model where anybody can pick up that game and play for free. Um, and then if they'd like, if they want to, they can buy card packs. It's a card-based game. Um, they can buy card packs, but it's completely optional. I think one of the interesting things that we're seeing in the industry as a whole is a variety of different business models um, that are being adopted by different publishers. And uh, we here at Blizzard actually use a lot of those different business models ourselves in our different titles to enable people um, to get involved in games in different ways. So in some cases, you have to pay an upfront license to pay a game. In some cases, games are free, and then you can just um, play them and decide uh, to buy things in the game if you'd like to. It's a very interesting time in the industry when all of these business models are coexisting with one another. Help us uh, think through that a little bit more, because I, I think there are probably few people or few kind of executives in the world who have thought about this so deeply as, as you have, because as you say, within one company, you have all these different business models of pay-per-month, pay-per-minute, in-app purchases. So tell us a little bit, like, let's start maybe with a different kind of uh, revenue models, and then explain to us how you decided which model goes to which game. 
Well, really, when we're thinking about the game um, and the way Blizzard approaches making games generally is we don't even usually worry about the business model at all in the beginning. You know, our goal is to create great gaming experiences for our community, to make the games as fun as they can be, to make the games as engaging as they can be, and just to create a great form of entertainment for our players. That's absolutely job number one for us, and it's the thing that drives us, and it's the thing that we're focused on 100% when we're building a game. As we build out the game, you know, we, we, are, we do have to figure out a way to also make some money off of it in order to be able to continue making these great games. Uh, and as we do that, we normally decide upon a business model that work, just works well for the game um, so that uh, players will feel very comfortable uh, with, uh, with having to pay something uh, in order to play the game. Or as I mentioned earlier, in some cases with our games, not even having to pay at all if they don't want to. So the business model really um, follows from what's the nature of the gameplay and what would be the, the best business model to enhance that gameplay and make it the best gaming experience that we can create. So how about uh, this kind of, uh, is, it, is it true that some, some regions, you, uh, like China, is more like a play-per-minute history? Well, the you know gaming in China has actually evolved a little bit differently from the rest of the world. Um, most games in China are very free to play, meaning that there's uh, no charge at all to initially play the game. So unlike games in the West, where still most games have an upfront license fee, most games in China don't. Um, they're the free to play model, a lot like we have on on mobile devices here in the Western world also. Um, but within China, there's a lot of items that you buy inside of games. So um, most of the games in China have in-app purchasing mm -hmm. of either cosmetic items or items that actually make you a more powerful player inside of the game. Um, it's uh, kind of very commonplace in China to be able to buy uh, items inside of games that make you a better player. Um, we try to avoid that in our games because we like our games to be um, you know, more even, uh, even keeled for all players. Um, but that's not always the case in, in, most China, in most games that are developed inside of China. Tell us a little bit more about this kind of making the games even. I find, and again, uh, my, my gaming experience online is primarily limited to uh, FIFA, PlayStation, and uh, Spiral the Dragon, which was actually just a console game. And so pardon my ignorance there, but I feel with any game design, you have to find somehow find the sweet spot that it is the game is fun and engaging even for the first-time user. Uh, but it still needs to be juicy for the person who is a real expert. And I, again, I think if, if I think about the electronic arts game FIFA, they've done this really well where you can have even as a beginner moments of, 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 of feelings of accomplishment, um, but you still get beaten by somebody who is better. So how do you personalize that kind of sense of mastery, that sense of accomplishment uh, to the individual player who might be at very different stages in their playing career? That's a really good question, and it is one of the things that makes really great game development uh, challenging. We like to think and we uh, endeavor always with our games to make them, we sometimes call it as easy to play and difficult to master. Um, the idea is just that what we're striving for is just what you described, that for the new player, they can come into the game and the play balance of the game and uh, the initial several hours of their play are very easy. Um, we want players to actually have a very rewarding and enriching experience right from the beginning. But the game can't stay that way or else folks will get tired of it pretty quickly. Uh, and so all of our games, we, with all of our games, we endeavor to also uh, uh, create a quite a, you know, an inclining curve of difficulty so that as you get further and further into the game, it becomes more and more challenging and more and more difficult to master. Um, but it's actually one of the things that's one of the more challenging things about creating creating a really good game is because you want a balance of both. With games where people are playing against one another, one of the things that we can do um, to enable that is how we do the matchmaking mm -hmm. as between players so that if you're new to a game, um, you know, we match you up or do our best to match you up against other new players so that all the newer players are kind of learning together. And then over time, as 
you spend more time in a game and you become more experienced and more expert in how to play that game, our matchmaking systems tend to match you up with, uh, with other players who are similar, have a similar level of experience. And so you're all coming up that learning curve together. Um, we do our best to do that, but, it, but again, it is one of the more challenging things about modern game design is to, to make them both easy and fun in the beginning and challenging uh, and in an encouraging way over the, over the long term as well. So somewhere in your database for a user ID for a particular gamer, there is some form of skill level and a set of like attributes describing his or her competence. Do you see these kind of match to different market segments in terms of purchase behavior or playing behavior? Well, we definitely do our tracking how players are doing in our game over over time, again, because we do want to um, really make sure that we're able to provide them a great experience on an ongoing basis. Um, you know, the, the, the reality is in terms of how it matches against other demographics or other um, categories of players, um, it really varies a great deal. Um, the wonderful thing about gaming is, um, you know, in the gaming industry generally is, it's really something for people of all ages and all backgrounds. And so there's not really a great correlation between, you know, really proficient, uh, somebody who's really proficient at video games and any particular demographic category. We see great gamers coming from every walks of life. It's a really neat thing. Every age, every, you know, region, uh, every nationality, everybody plays games. Can you, in marketing, there's this term, the lifetime value of a customer that we could kind of quantify as basically the future revenue, the future profit that comes out of a customer account going forward through the rest of that life cycle of the account. Can you, can you predict for a particular gamer based on their gaming behavior in the past, their skills, whether that is somebody who's going to be around for a while or do you sometimes say, like, whoops, where is Christian? I mean, we thought he was super engaged <laughs> and now he's gone. Well, what we see with games, and especially with core gamers who play the types of games that we create, is they do play a lot of different video games, right? Um, both ours and the games of other uh, great video game publishers. So it's very commonplace for for gamers to um, you know to play a lot of different games. Uh, there's, I wouldn't say that there's a you know a direct category of correlation against lifetime value. Probably the most um, obvious thing um, is that if you play a lot of games, in all likelihood, you're going to continue to play a lot of games. And even if maybe uh, you lapse or go away and play somebody else's game, we know that over time you're probably going to come back and play one of our games too. Um, gamers are gamers. This is a very important part of their um, you know, of their life and their uh, their lifestyle. And so we know that when we have players who play our games, and, and there's a very high likelihood that they're going to continue to play our games and other games uh, and the f games that we release into the future. Um, the, more, the more people play, the, the more people play. So uh, if, if I would be your executive vice president of finance, what, what type of metrics would I be kind of tracking to see whether – we're dealing with a healthy game community and a healthy portfolio of games, or to what extent we might make currently revenue, but it, I'm, I really should get nervous about revenues in a year or two years from now. What, what, what type of financial metrics do you track? Well, uh, we certainly do look at our overall player base and how it's growing over time, and we look at things, you know, in terms of how much revenue per player we're getting over time. I mean, there are, of course, you know, these traditional financial revenues we look at to measure the health of our game. But we don't just limit it to financial revenues and financial uh, uh, metrics to determine the health of our business. Because this is an entertainment business and we have a really robust community, and so more important to us, frankly, than tracking the dollars and cents is tracking the sentiment of our community mm -hmm. and being in touch with our community and making sure that we're continuing to provide them great gaming experiences and um, and we know that not through financial metrics, uh, but rather by engaging with our community all the time, our player community, and listening to them and um, and seeing how they're reacting to the games and the products that we produce. Um, it's more of a soft science than a hard science, honestly. But we know that if we continue to create great gaming experiences for our for our players. Um, that the business will follow from that, and the business will kind of take care of itself a little bit from that as long as we're continuing to create great uh, games and um, satisfy the needs of our players. 
feel free to pass on the following question. But for World of Warcraft, uh, total game revenues last year were how much? Uh, yeah, that's I'm not, I'm not at liberty to disclose. Sure, that okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> but but the, I like so if you think about the obviously financial measures such as top line revenue, as we think about uh, revenue per player, revenue per hour played, you're describing how these next level of uh, performance measures such as engagement uh, of the community, such as kind of the health of the community, those are really the leading indicators that will tell you whether revenues will come down three, four, five years from now, right? That they, they truly are. As long as we're creating great gaming experiences and our players are engaged and our players are feeling rewarded and happy um, and satisfied with our products, we know there's always going to be money and revenue and profitability that, that flows from that uh, ultimately. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and I'm chatting with Gio Hunt, who is the executive vice president and executive producer at Blizzard Entertainment, the company that produces, among other things, World of Warcraft. We've talked a lot about money uh, uh, since the title of the show was Work of Tomorrow. I would like to learn a little bit about how it feels like working for you, uh, uh, Gio. Can you give us a sense of how big of a team you have? Uh, so I have a team of about 400 folks right now. And those must be spread over like jobs such as art and design, uh, programming, customer support, and accounting. Or I mean, what's kind of the uh, rough rough breakdown of these kind of different jobs? Uh, well, actually, the, the the part of the company that I oversee is is uh, called BattleNet. It's our online gaming platform, and so we're the organization that produces the fundamental game platform upon which all of our games run. So my team is comprised of software engineers, program managers, architects, designers. The folks who are really involved in building our platform, our websites, our shop experiences, our mobile applications, less so building the games themselves, but building all of the software infrastructure upon which our games run. So the actual artist who sits there and kind of sketches out a new character or a new kind of a, a new landscape, that is a different part of the organization? That's a different part of the organization, yes. We have a very large game development organization with multiple different teams on it, a team basically working on each one of our games. And so inside of those teams, you'd have artists and designers and engineers and uh, production folks as well. What type of skills do you look for in a game developer? So in a game developer, there's actually, the term game developer actually encompasses a lot of different types of individuals also. Um, the core of a game is uh, called game design, and those folks are really just focused on the mechanics of the game themselves and on designing the gameplay, making the game fun. Um, they don't do the engineering or the art. They're just literally focused on what the game itself is, what the core game loop is. The other folks that are game developers are software engineers who are building both the front-end system, the, you know, the client software that runs on your computer, as well as the software that runs on the server that's serving that game. Uh, and then, of course, you have production folks who make sure that all of this stuff is getting done and, and uh, shipped on time. And you definitely have artists, as you mentioned as well, character artists, level artists, uh, and then in addition to that, there's folks who work on the music and sound from a game, from the cinematics that appear in a game. Um, it's really a convergence of a lot of different technology and art forms all coming to one uh, in order to create a game. How much are you competing directly with the movie uh, industry? I mean, I saw some of the trailers of uh, World of Warcraft on YouTube, and oh my God, that's uh, almost a qu production quality of, uh, of The Hobbit, right? <laughs> well, we certainly do put a lot of time and effort and love into the cinematics that we create uh, that appear in our games and are used also to promote our games. Um, we're a big believer in that visual art form. I don't really think of us as competing with the movies. Um, people go to the movies for a lot of different reasons and I think play games for different reasons as well. It's all entertainment, of course. Um, we have had one of our franchises, the World of Warcraft franchise, the Warcraft franchise, made into a uh, major motion picture a couple of years ago. Um, and it may be something that we do again in the, in the future as well. So tell us a little bit about the role of technology and, and how that is changing. I mean, I remember playing my first uh, video games on an Apple II computer where the evil monster were like six green dots on a black screen. And 
the the sound card was like a little you know a little beepy or a little crunchy or however you want to call it. We now you know have made dramatic advances where certainly the the PC games PC platforms are basically video quality. The the network latency has improved to amazing levels. What is next? I, I just cannot, from any industry I've ever studied, I cannot imagine that we've reached the end of all times. So what is happening in the next five years, ten years, that we as, as gamers, as consumers should look forward to? Um, well, you're absolutely right. The technology underpinning games has evolved a lot in the you know last 20 years, frankly, in the last uh, 10 and 5 years, for that matter. Um, it takes very large teams of people to build the types of games that we produce today. And I think one of the most interesting developments that we've seen um, from the time, you know, from the uh, time of the Apple II or whatever that you just mentioned, where most of the, of the gaming experience was just local on your personal computer, is the fact that today almost all the games that we produce and that most publishers uh, produce, for that matter, are games as a service. They are uh, games that are played both on your local PC um, or your local console, but a lot of the software and a lot of the engineering that's driving that gaming experience is online and being uh, provided to you through server software. And certainly a lot of our games are like that too. And I think moving to games as a service has allowed games and uh, game experiences to really be you know, ongoing, ever-present, um, dynamic worlds. Uh, and that's been a really interesting development when you think about those games from time immemorial to, to games now. You know, it used to be that you'd buy a game, you'd play it for a couple weeks or maybe a month, and then you'd move on to the next thing. Um, and you wouldn't be able to play with anybody else. In the modern era, gaming is really all online, or mostly online at least, and so you get to play uh, with a lot of other people from around the world, and I think that's really changed and on an ongoing and, and persistent basis. And I think that's really changed the nature of gaming. Gaming has gone from a very solitary experience to a very, very social experience um, where you're playing with all these different people, and the communities around gaming then has also kind of really created so that that community... Uh, the community of gamers playing a game exists in the game and also exists outside of the game. There's so much of that gaming community that is online and different websites and forums and online communities and exchanging information about the game outside the game, about how to play the game better. And I think that's all a great evolution that we've seen you know, over the last decade or so. As to where it goes into the future, wow, that's hard to predict. Um, you know, there's a lot of thought that um, gaming might um, uh, really get into the AR or VR space, um, you know, alternative reality or virtual reality space. We do think that that's uh, definitely a vector that you could see gaming going in. I'm not sure over what time frame that might happen. Um, I think there was a lot of hype about VR a couple of years ago, and I think that's calmed down a little bit because there's a lot of technology challenges involved with that. But I definitely think that, you know, that is definitely an area that we could, um, you know, that, that where more uh, gaming and gaming experiences could be created. And I think we'll just see more and more online games also. And I think we'll also see, um, you know, the potential for more what I'll call user-generated gaming, uh, where a lot of the gaming experiences, a lot of the things that you encounter in games are actually created by end users and, and not all the work is being done by the developers and publishers. Um, but a good way to do that hasn't really been invented yet. Um, it's been something that everybody's been talking about for years, but hasn't happened yet. But it could happen um, you know, as these tools for creating assets and levels and characters inside of games become you know, more broadly accessible. You could see some of that happening, too. But it's really hard to know. Says Gio Hunt of Blizzard Entertainment, the company that produces World of Warcraft. Thank you so much, Gio. We've reached the end Thank of the you. show today. We've talked about board games and card games and moved on to visual, virtual worlds and digital games. Uh, great microcosm to learn about lots of other industries. I'm Christian Tevish, and on behalf of all of us here at the Wharton School, thank you for listening. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.